0: walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You know, I started to do this topic... Actually, as, as the even the first episode of The Sound and Fury. It was something uh, that was very much topical at the time, Certainly, certainly is now. But I wanted to wait a while and compose my thoughts. I wanted to make sure that what I was saying was not just emotional, but rational and well thought out. I'm sure not everybody's going to agree with that, but that's okay. I want to talk, the the topic of the show is is nominally anyway, about uh, gun control versus the right to bear arms. But it's really not about that. That's just what got me thinking. It's really about constitutionalism in general and, and the adherence to a defining principle I try to associate myself with a wide range of people. Those who agree with me, those who disagree with me, those who uh, share a similar experience to my my own life and those whose experiences in life are vastly different than my own. I'm privileged to have friends all over the world. The internet allows us that privilege in the modern age. Some of my very... Good friends are people I've never met in reality. We've never sat face-to-face in the same room. But I know them well and have been through joy and pain with them for years at a distance. And and a while ago, months ago, I was having a conversation with a, with a friend of mine from England. She's English through and through. Uh, born and raised there, does not understand the American mindset any more than I understand the English mindset. And we were talking about the Constitution. And she was, I don't want to say dismayed, she was confused by my almost reverence to the, the, the Constitution, to the document that is the Constitution. And that conversation um, went on for quite some time, for, for several days. And, and we, you know, off and on discussed her mindset is it's just an old piece of paper. It's a letter written a long time ago. It doesn't have any bearing in the modern world. Why, why revere it so? Why um, consider it so important? it's 200 plus years old it it was not written in a in a time that is in any way similar to the time in which we now live shouldn't shouldn't we chuck that thing and start over again and it brought to my mind the parallel between the constitution and many religious texts see religious people understand a governing document Christians have the Bible, Jews the Torah, Muslims the Quran, every, I don't want to say every. Most world religions, certainly the long-lived ones, have a sacred text, and and that text has many things in it, in the case of... of you know, the Bible, for example, it's the one I know best. Uh, it is object lessons and and history and stories of things that were and predictions of things that will be and past predictions, you know, that were the future and have now come to, to be the past. There's, there's, there's an intricate web of morality and culture and history woven throughout the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. But its true power is in that it's the constitution of the Christian life, as is the Quran for a Muslim. It's, the, it's their constitution. It's the principles by which they live. And it occurred to me that irreligious people don't understand adherence to the Bible, nor do they understand adherence to the Constitution. Of course, that's a, a generalization. There are some uh, irreligious people who revere the Constitution. But the idea is that there, there is a governing document. There is a thing which lays out the principles of how I will live my life. Some people have a you know every business has a mission statement right that's that's essentially the constitution of that business every organization has bylaws if you've ever been a member of any large size organization of any type um you know um, be it religious or or service-oriented, or purely secular, or you know, or whatever. The you know, your local D and D gamers down the street who meet you know in in the garage have a system of rules. Scrabble players have a have a system of rules. The idea is the the the, the underlying principle is that we as humans need guiding documents. It's in our makeup. If we can't find them handed down generationally and culturally, we will make our own. The Constitution of the United States is the seminal document of the culture in which I live. It's the thing that gave birth to everything else. So we had just won a war for our independence as our nation. And we didn't, we had this thing. We had told England, all right, we're done with you now. We don't want to be ruled by your king anymore. We want to do things our way. And through the process of a rebellion and a war, we won that right. England ceded their right of control to us and said, okay, fine. You are now your own thing. You're not a property of ours anymore. You can do what you want. Well, then we had a problem as a country. We didn't know what we wanted, we knew we didn't want a king but we didn't know what we did want. We didn't know how we were going to, to run this new thing that we had just created. We were so busy creating it and so busy running away from something, we weren't entirely sure what we were running to. So some really, really smart guys, some of the smartest guys in recorded history were all alive at the same time. And they got together and they created a foundational document for our country actually they did it a couple of times the first one sort of didn't stick they did these things called constitutional conventions where they come together and say we are all going to agree what the law of the land will be so finally after several iterations we came up with the document that we know today as the U.S. Constitution, and it was fought over. It was not something written quickly or easily. It was hammered out by, like, like I said, some of the smartest guys um, ever, and they stole heavily from their history, from from other cultures. You know, our uh, bicameral legislature, and, and you know, the the Senate and the House of of representatives is pretty much lifted directly from you know the, the English government. And when they were done, they said, all right, we have to ratify this thing. We've created it. We've created our document. This is it. This will be the law of the land. And then they had to pass it around. And say, okay, can we all agree that this is the law of the land? And it was a it was a brilliant idea. Uh, some people call it the grand experiment. It was a republic that was based on democratic principles. It was Rome and it was Greece put together. It was a system in which every voice mattered, but no voice mattered more than anyone else's pure republic. I mean, excuse me, pure democracy. But in that every voice matters and every voice being the same, they built in pressure relief valves so that no one small group, no matter how loud or even how popular, could take over things. We call it the balance of powers or the checks and balances. These three branches of government: the judicial, the executive, the legislative. Legislative. My eight-year-old daughter is is uh, learning about this now in her school, and she made this great poster board with the three branches of government across the top, and she listed what they do in very simple terms. The legislative branch makes the laws of the land. The executive branch enforces, carries out, and affects the laws of the land. The judicial branch examines and oversees the laws of the land and decides whether they're good. How do they know that? They compare it to the Constitution, that original document. That was the gold standard. This was not an easy sell. It took a long time to get this thing that was written ratified. It's was a high standard. Two-thirds of the population had to agree to it. And they had this idea that we were going to create a government with only the power that we say they have. We won't give this government the ability to give itself more power. See, they were running from a monarchy. That's what monarchies can do. The word of the monarch, the word of the king, is law. The moment he speaks it, it is law. He can give him he is all-powerful. His power comes from divine right, directly from God. They didn't want that. They wanted a government that could only do what they said it could do. James Madison in particular was was a, a big proponent of saying that um, the government Has no implied powers. It has express powers. This we're going to do only what we can say we can do. And there were a lot of people, even back then, even in the late 1700s, who didn't buy this. Said, you know, you give people power, they're going to take more power. They're going to find a way to make sure they can do more. And they said, okay, we will ratify this, but we want certain things guaranteed. And those became known as the Bill of Rights. So the document was created and then amended immediately before it was ever ratified. And the first 10 amendments are known as the Bill of Rights. Now, in reality, those amendments don't need to be there. The First Amendment, which guarantees the right to freedom of expression, shouldn't be there because there's nothing in the Constitution that says the government can take away your right. To expression. But having just come from a monarchy, having just fought a war, the population didn't buy that. And we said, we want it in writing. We want it right there in the document that says they cannot do this. And immediately after the guarantee of the right to say what's on your mind is the right to bear arms. Remember, these people just came out of a war. Had they not been bearing arms, they would still be subjects of the King of England. And they said, okay, we're going to create this government, but we want to make sure we can take it back if we have to. And there are a lot of people who disagree with that sentiment and say that's not what the Second Amendment was for. That's not why it was there. Well, let me read you some quotes from the people who helped write it. James Madison, quote, Americans have the right and advantage to being armed, unlike the citizens of other countries whose governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. For Madison, it was about trust. You're asking the people to trust the government to rule properly? Fine, the government has to trust the people with the power to take that right back. Alexander Hamilton wrote, the best we can hope for concerning the people at large is that they be properly armed. He thought that was their best, best hope. We can put out this document, we can say this is going to be the law of the land, but the best hope is that the people are armed. From that first Continental Congress A quote came out that said, Men trained in arms from their infancy and animated by the love of liberty will afford neither a cheap or easy conquest. So you see, this this idea is not new, and it's not revisionist history. It was there from the beginning that the Second Amendment was there specifically in case this Constitution thing didn't work out. And the people could take back their government, could take back their land. If they accidentally created a tyrant using the Constitution, they wanted to be able to overthrow that tyrant. Just like they had overthrown the King of England, whom they'd made out to be a tyrant. Why does this matter? Because that is the law of the land. Just like in a monarchy, what the king says is law, here what the Constitution says is law. It's not an option. It's not a choice. And they created an entire branch of government, the judicial branch, whose purpose is to hold up any law written and compare it to the Constitution and say, does this hold water? This law that we've just made, this power that we've just granted, does it match what the Constitution says? If the answer is yes, it's a valid law. If the answer is no, it doesn't matter if the president supported it. It doesn't matter if the executive branch carries it out. It doesn't matter if the legislative branch wrote it. It doesn't matter if it was passed by a unanimous vote all the way around. If it's not constitutional, it does not stand. That's the purpose of the legislative branch of government as it was originally created. I'm sorry, the judicial branch. I think I misspoke there. The judicial branch does not have the power to create any laws. It was never given to them. They only have the ability to strike down laws that the legislative branch have created. So when you get caught up in these arguments about what is free speech, what is the right to bear arms, what does that matter? Sometimes it's best to cut the garbage back and look, go back to the beginning and say, what are the governing principles of our country? What is the law of the land? And it's not hard. Do a Google search for Constitution. You'll get a Wikipedia page that lists the entire text of the United States Constitution. How many of you have read it? Very, very few. Why does that matter? Because that is the law of the land. And if you're an educated populace, then you will know when the governor tries to do something that is against the law, you will know. I happen to think that's why that first amendment is there, the right to expression. They didn't want to stamp out the message. They wanted somebody to be be able to say, this isn't right. And then secondly, they wanted to have the guns to back it up. Now, we're a long way from that. But here's the thing. The Constitution hasn't changed. It's been amended a few times. Certain things have been added. At one point, they decided it was a good idea to make it the law of the land that nobody could drink alcohol. A few years later, they decided that was a really bad idea. But this document that is 200 years old and that has been the foundation of one of the most powerful civilizations in history has only been amended a couple of dozen times. And most of those changes were pretty minor. And then somewhere along the line, the judicial branch got this idea that said, you know, there are things that aren't, expressly said in the in the constitution they're not in the law but they're implied and this concept of implied powers arose and became trendy for a while still is the idea that the the constitution didn't say it but clearly if we divine the intent of the 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 framers of the constitution we can figure out what they really meant that's where you run in to the the two different schools of thought. There's, There's those who say the Constitution is a living, breathing, fluid document that must change with the times and must be reinterpreted and we must go back and divine the intent of the framers of the Constitution. And there are others like myself who fall down on the other side of it and say what's there is what's there. That's known as constructionism. The document was constructed in a way. We don't divine intent. We don't fudge here and there. We look at what's there and we say, does what's happening today match with the words on that page? If the answer is yes, we're all good. If the answer is no... It's unconstitutional, and there's an entire branch of our government whose job is to strike it down. The foundational document does not get interpreted. It is what it is, it is the thing on which everything else is built. That's why it's important. In a modern culture, people wonder, why is it important? I've heard that so many times. Usually from students who are tired of studying about the Constitution. Why does this matter? Let me tell you why it matters. It's the basis of everything we do. I go to work every day, just outside of downtown Atlanta, and I'm the 10th floor Excuse me, the eighth floor of a, of a 16 story building. You better believe the foundation of that building is important because it supports everything up above it. And if somebody tries to interpret that foundation and decides to, to mess with it a little bit and fudge it here and there and say, you know, we could probably do without this pillar here in the parking garage, you know what happens? The building is weakened. You do it enough, the building falls and everyone in it dies. We are messing with the foundation of our country on a regular basis and we are making it weaker. Do I believe the the Constitution of the United States is some inerrant document? Of course not. That's why an amendment process was built in. The people who wrote it didn't believe it was perfect. They knew it needed to be changed. And you know what? If we wanted to, we could scrap the whole thing. We can call a constitutional convention. It's right there in the law. It's allowed. And we can, we can follow the rules that were laid out, and we could call a constitutional convention, and we can rewrite the whole thing. Throw it out. You don't like the Second Amendment? Get rid of it. You can do that. There's a process by which you can do that. You don't like mentions of God in the foundational document of our country? Get rid of them. You can do that. The document says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. It's right there in the document. That there is a God, that the God, the creator, maybe not God, maybe he's a giant android. There's a creator, and the creator is the one who gives rights. The government doesn't give rights. The government's only power is to take rights away. You don't like that language. You don't believe in God. You think it's anachronistic and it doesn't belong anymore. Take it out. Hold a constitutional convention. Rewrite it. You can do that. But until you're willing to man up, until you're willing to lay your dong on the table and say, this constitution doesn't count anymore. I want to get rid of it. You got to follow what's there. It's cowardly to say you believe something and then act in a contrary manner. Every member of our military swears an oath to defend the Constitution. Not to defend the country, necessarily, but to defend the Constitution. Because it's that important. It's the foundation. There was an article written some time ago, it's it's out of date, for sure. And it was published in the uh, um, UMCKC. I, I can't remember offhand what that stands for. Law Review in 1987 by a fellow named Douglas Linder. It's called "Strict Constructionism and the Strike Zone." There's a link to it in the show notes of this page. And it's a, it's a rather long, drawn-out metaphor about an umpire in the major leagues of baseball who calls a strike a strike. And people say, you know, the strike zone going from the armpits to the knees makes it too much a pitcher's game. Hitters can't hit. People want to see home runs. They don't want to go and sit through three hours of a zero to one game, they don't see strikeout after strikeout. So I'm going to start calling a strike between the waist and the nipples. That's a strike. It's higher than the higher than the nipples. No good. If it's, if it's below the waist, no good. doesn't matter if the rule book says it's from the armpit to the knees. I'm going to call a strike where I think a strike needs to be because that's what the people want. That, what, that's what makes the game exciting. And if the people want it and it's not hurting anything, let's just do it that way. And along comes an umpire who refuses to do that. And he calls a pitch just above the knees a strike. And he calls a pitch way up high, just under the armpits, a strike. And the batters say, I can't hit a pitch that high. It's ridiculous. I like it low in away. That's where I can hit it. And the umpire says, but that's not a strike. That's not what the rule book says. So time passes, and peer pressure wins, and they change the strike zone. They rewrite it and say it's from the navel to the knees. So all these high pitches that the, that the hitters don't like, that are up around the armpits, are now strikes. And so they go to this umpire and say, what are you going to do now? He says, well, I'm going to call a strike a strike. And so those high pitches that are just above uh, the nipples under the armpit, they're they're no longer strikes. And the game goes on, and people get their 15 to 19 exciting, hitting-fast games. And somebody asks him, what do you think about that? He says, they changed the rule, and my job is to enforce the rule as an umpire. That is the the constructionist view of the Constitution and of the laws of the land. So the current president has made some, some people very unhappy and some people very happy by proposing very strict restrictions (laughs) I, i i doubled up there it was redundant strict restrictions on on how you who can what kind of gun an american can purchase and what kind of ammo it's now um no longer kosher to have a clip that holds more than 10 bullets see here's here's where that bothers me not because i'm a gun nut i don't own a gun of any kind in fact i never have i've never owned a firearm outside of a bb gun i grew up around them my grandfather took me to the range when i was about six years old he belonged to a gun club and we'd spend our weekends out shooting my brother was older he would he would shoot the shotguns do skeet shooting i was small i could barely hold up a pistol i'd have to prop it up on something to be able to shoot that Some of you listening to this are horrified by that. You put a gun in the hands of a six-year-old? He did. And you know what? I grew up respecting weapons. Much of my family was military. My mom kept a shotgun in the closet in her bedroom. She was a single mom raising two kids alone. She kept a shotgun in the closet. Just in case. Thankfully, she never needed it as far as I know, that weapon was never fired other than target practice. Fast forward, I'm now forty years old. I don't own any weapons. there are none in my house. I'm not a gun nut, but as was said by Alexander Hamilton, excuse me, that's the wrong quote uh, in the uh, declaration for the uh Continental Congress of July uh, 1775, men trained in arms from their infancy. I was trained in arms from my infancy. I know to never point a weapon at something I do not want to destroy. And that's why I don't have it in my house. There is nothing in my house I want to destroy. Some of you would say, what about a home invasion? Somebody might come into your home and you might want to destroy that someone. You're right. I would hope I could find other ways to do it. I'm a big guy. And I guess I've always just relied on that. I know people who live in very rural areas and they keep weapons... Not for home invaders, but for wild animals. You know, Texas, where I'm from, a wild boar is in your backyard. That's not a nuisance. That's not an animal that's just going to do damage. That's an animal that can destroy your your pets, your livestock, and your family. You destroy that animal. Then you make tasty sausage and bacon out of it. So there are lots of reasons to own a gun that have nothing to do with overthrowing a government. But make no mistake, the Second Amendment Amendment is all about overthrowing the government. When Fidel Castro took over Cuba, the first thing he did was take away the weapons. You don't need them anymore. We win. We're in charge. We're the good guys. You can trust us. Mohandas Gandhi was quoted in his autobiography as saying, "Among the many misdeeds of the British rule in India, history will look, on, look upon the act of depriving a whole nation of arms as the blackest." No warmonger there. But he knew the value of an armed populace." India took uh, excuse me, uh, England took over India. And disarm the people. Said you don't need those anymore. And slowly, the trend over the last thirty years or more has been to disarm the American public. The government is disarming the public. I'm not an alarmist. I don't think that there's going to be a Castro or, a, or a, you know, some vile governmental thing happen and that's why we need our weapons but it's the law of the land that I have the right to bear arms so what does the second amendment second amendment actually say you know a lot of people probably don't know that it's one sentence it says quote a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What's interesting is there are are many times uh, where amendments begin with something like Congress shall make no law. For example, the First Amendment begins that way. Abridging the right to free speech or exercising the freedom thereof. That's a paraphrase. This one doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say the government will not. It says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So people get hung up on the word infringed and say, well, what does that mean? How does, how does a, wep, a law saying you can't own an assault rifle infringe upon your rights. You can still go own a shotgun. Nobody's saying you can't own a gun. Words mean things. And as a strict constructionist, I look at the law, uh, excuse me, the, the words of the document. What do the words say? That's what the law is. So let me read to you the definition of infringed from what is widely known as the American Dictionary. And that's Merriam-Webster. Merriam-Webster, the first definition, says, to encroach upon in any way that violates the laws or rights of another. Here's my favorite one, actually, though the second definition. It says it's obsolete. Well, let's think about this. This document was written 200 plus years ago. They would be using the obsolete version of the word. Webster's definition for obsolete is to defeat or to frustrate. So let's use the obsolete definition since we are talking over 200 years ago and let's rephrase that. Let's put that definition into the word, uh, into the, the amendment. Though A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be frustrated. That changes things, doesn't it? Words mean things. The law of the land is that you can't frustrate people who want to keep, an arm, uh, keep and bear arms. Well, then you get into the, well, what's the definition of arms? They didn't have assault weapons in 1775. They were talking about AK-47s and M1 Garands. All right. I'll play that game with you. They didn't have MTV or the Internet then either. Does that mean the First Amendment doesn't apply to those things? Does the First Amendment only apply to stump speeches and newspapers? You can't allow one and not allow the other. You can't say the document is fluid. Well, it has to grow. and has to expand. It has to encounter new media. Of course the Internet is protect- protected. Well, if the internet's protected... So is an AK-47. You can't use the argument that that weapon didn't exist back then and then defend something else that didn't exist back then. See, that interpretation is a very slippery slope. It's a lot easier and, and quicker to simply read the words and say, what do they mean? That's the law of the land. Americans will not be frustrated by their government when they want to keep and bear arms. See, here's the thing about a republic. The Constitution applies only to the federal government. If your city, your local government, says no weapons of any kind inside city limits, that's totally fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's not illegal. They can do that. And in fact, in the Old West, it, was, it became a fairly common thing. When men walked around with six-shooters on their hip, cities who were tired of seeing dead men in the streets wearing six-shooters said no more. No guns. And they have that right. I am now a citizen of the state of Georgia. If the state of Georgia says no guns allowed in the state, all guns will be confiscated at state lines. They can do that. That's not unconstitutional because the Constitution doesn't affect states. So you see, this is where I come down as a, constructiv- a strict constructionist. While I don't like that idea, It's not illegal. And if I don't like it, I can move to another state. I can always go back to Texas. Trust me, Texans will never be without their guns. But the idea of a a federal constitution is you can move state to state and city to city and you can find the place where you fit, but you shouldn't have to move to another country to keep one of your God-given rights. Again, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. It's right there in the, in the document. God gives us the right. And we're going to make sure government take, doesn't take it away. People throw around that phrase often, God-given rights. That's where it comes from. Again, the foundational document of our entire civilization says that rights come from God. That's why we believe it. You don't like it? Change the Constitution. But you can believe that nobody's going to do that because they're too scared. Because you try to change the Constitution, and the sleeping giant will wake the people who don't understand or don't care about the Constitution, they'll pay attention really quickly. And the guys like me who believe something strongly but aren't super political about it, we're going to come out of the woodworks. And you can bet we're going to be at that Constitutional Convention. Then you get in a real dangerous spot. What if we write into the Constitution that the president can't be reelected. That would be bad. No president wants that. What if we write into the new Constitution that senators aren't allowed to be paid more than the minimum wage? We don't want that. So you see, once you start mucking with things directly, once you open that can of very ugly worms and say we're going to change the Constitution, even the most radical backs off. Because then what they want might be in danger. So they work to change through other means. And for the last generation, it's been the judicial system. Those people whose only purpose is to decide whether a law is constitutional or not, have been taking it on themselves to rewrite laws. Not directly, but in choosing how it's upheld in court rulings. The modern incarnation of the judicial branch of our government is almost all-powerful. Through fiat and through interpretation, they can nullify any law. And while they can't directly write laws, they can compel people to do things. The Supreme Court can say to the President of the United States, this is what you must do. That's a lot of power. And you better make sure the people who sit on that court... Respect that power. Not whether they believe in abortion or don't believe in abortion. Uh, Believing in it, that's a a ridiculous phrase. Nobody questions whether it's a thing. Whether or not they support it or oppose it. You better look at these people who are on the Supreme Court and say, do they understand their job? Do they know what the purpose of the, the judicial branch is? Do they respect the Constitution? We pick these people and we abuse them during the confirmation process. And we pick them apart based on our pet legislations. And we say, we're never going to put you, we're never going to appoint you to this seat unless you promise that at the first chance, you'll overturn Roe v. Wade and make abortion illegal again. My friends, that is totally the wrong question to be asking a potential Supreme Court justice. You need to be asking them, do you believe that the Constitution is the foundational document of our country? Do you believe that the words written on the page are the intent of the the writers? And do you believe that we today, that you yourself, are bound by the words as they are written? That's the question you have to ask.